We continue our walk through the book of John this morning, and believe it or not, friends, the end is in sight. We are only six chapters away from concluding our study. When we have finished the book of John, we will have spent over two years together in John's gospel and be somewhere around 75 to 80 messages through this powerful book. And from the beginning, from the start of our study together in this book, we have been studying the book in light of the reason for which it is written. And John, in his gospel, uh, gives clear purpose for writing. And why don't we say these verses together in our homes this morning? John 20, 30, and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 30, and 31. This morning we're still in Jesus' farewell discourse. This is a beautiful and harmonious section of John's gospel, and it leads us right up to Jesus' high priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. We will have six messages between John 15 and John 16 before we arrive with Jesus in the Garden to break apart his high priestly prayer that he prayed, a beautiful prayer in John chapter 17. And really, John chapter 17 serves as a sort of transitional axle in the gospel. It closes out the discourses, closes out the miracles that we had witnessed earlier in John's gospel, and it prepares us for the challenges ahead as we move to the cross. The challenges, obviously, yes, they included the cross, but but also for Jesus' disciples, the rigors of planning and establishing the early church, and for us today, friends, disciples of Jesus, the obstacles that are involved with carrying the message of the gospel throughout the world are really highlighted towards the end of John's gospel. And today we journey into John chapter 15, and we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of John chapter 15. I'd invite you to take your Bibles now and turn there, John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus is going to unpack and he's going to lay out a metaphor for us today that establishes a foundation for how believers can experience life. In Jesus' name, Jesus will declare truth about himself. He'll declare truth about his father, his disciples. And we'll learn this. If we are to have life in Jesus' name, it can only be found attached to the true vine. So take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And today we're going to explore together three ways that disciples of Jesus can experience real, true, abundantly fruitful life. And we're going to answer this question. How do believers experience true and abundantly fruitful life? Before we begin, let's take a moment and pray. Father, our prayer this morning as we gather around your word in these uncertain days is that your word would serve as a magnet for us. 
this morning. That it would draw us in, Father, that you would help us to cast aside all of the distractions, and there's many. As we gather in our home, I'm sure there's noises, there's activity, all kinds of things happening all around us. But Father, we trust in the living, active nature of your word and we gather as a congregation today, even in our homes, united around this living, active word, believing, Lord, that your spirit is working and moving even now and trusting that you can use your word to draw us in, to change our hearts, to capture our minds. Lord, whatever distractions are in our way today, I pray that you would help us to cast them aside and cast ourselves under the truth of your word. Might it guide us? Might it lead us? Might it direct us in these difficult days? And may we still seek to honor and glorify you through all that we learn together today. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for Jesus' words in John chapter 15. May they be a guide to us of how to live fruitfully even in the midst of COVID-19. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we unpack our scripture today, we want to begin by reading these eight verses. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As we begin this morning, we want to begin by identifying who the true vine is and who the vine dresser is in this passage. In the book of Isaiah, it declares that God had a vineyard, a beloved vineyard, one that he had planted in the most fertile of hills, a vineyard that he himself had dug. It was a vineyard that he cleared of stones, removing any obstacle for its growth, the vineyard where he had planted the choicest of vines. He took such care over his vineyard, friends. He, he even built a watchtower. And right in the middle, he hewed a heavenly crafted wine vat right inside. 
Then the prophet in chapter five of Isaiah says that he waited. He waited for his vineyard to yield grapes. Now, this kind of vineyard, friends, it should have yielded the choicest and and ripest and best of grapes. The best grapes ever, the best wine ever should have come from this vineyard. But what did it produce instead? Wild grapes. Wild grapes. The wild grapes are sour. They're they're hard. The good grapes, they grow plump and juicy, and they're perfect for making wine, but sour wild grapes are not good for much of anything. Of course, the vineyard here, friends, was Israel. And as Jesus began his earthly ministry, as he arrived in John chapter 1, as we studied, the word became flesh and dwelt among us as he was dwelling physically among his people. Israel, the vineyard of God, was withered. She had rejected the care and attention of her vine dresser, the true keeper of the vineyard. And she had begun to rely on her own efforts and her own strength to grow. And the results, friends, were disastrous. They were disastrous for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they were disastrous for the people whom Jesus came to serve, fruit burdened and oppressed by the yoke of man. And then in John 1, the true vine. And, and it's no accident, friends, that one of Jesus' first miracles, in fact, his first miracle in the book of John is doing what? He attends a wedding. And what is the miracle that he performs? He turns water into wine. The imagery is unmistakable as it relates to our passage this morning. And then there's another account in The book of Mark, early in Jesus' ministry in chapter 2, if you remember this, John the Baptist, his disciples and the Pharisees, they're fasting. And Jesus and his disciples are not. And so the people come to Jesus and they ask him, why do your disciples not fast? Jesus' response is striking. He says to them in verse 19 of Mark 2, can wedding guests fast? When the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. And then he ends with this in verse 22. If you skip ahead, it's on the screen here. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The father who is the vine dresser had sent the true vine, Jesus, and the fruitlessness or the fruitfulness, sorry, the fruitfulness of those who abide in Jesus is being contrasted here in John 15 against the fruitlessness of of Israel, the vine that God had planted in the Old Testament. 
the true vine, the one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6. Take a look at this verse. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The true vine had come. He was among his people. He was here now. And it turns out, really, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, fruit is something that is tightly woven into both God's creative and redemptive purposes. Now, this is amazing, friends. Fruit and fruit production are very important to God from the beginning of time all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Indeed, we can reflect and know this reality that fruit is the very evidence of life. And wherever you see or find fruit, you see or find that life exists. This is all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, and, and maybe you've read this chapter many, many times in your life, but overlooked how often the word fruit appears in God's creative purposes. Take a look at verses 11 and 12 of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to their own kind. And God saw that it was good. The production of fruit is attached to what God sees as good in his creation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. So God created the great sea creatures, every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kind, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was good. God blessed them, saying, What? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters of the sea, let the birds multiply. On the earth. And then finally, friends, in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them. This is speaking of Adam and Eve. And God said to them, What? Be fruitful. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every little thing that moves on the earth. And what do we know is we open the Gospels in the New Testament. Adam had failed. Israel, the vine that God had planted, that God had made a covenant with, the vineyard that God had placed in a perfect land that he had cleared of all enemies, that vine was withering, dying, failed. Sour, hard fruit. Jesus would not fail. The true vine had come. 
the pure and the perfect vine, the vine who was with God in the beginning, who was very God, who knew God perfectly and man perfectly and was able to produce both abundant fruit and abundant life. And as the true vine began his earthly ministry, branches started to form. Buds, disciples, early signs of life, new fruit. But what's sad, friends, is that not every branch that exists within the vine is living and healthy. Take a look back at John chapter 15 at verses 2 to 4 with me. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear even more fruit. It is the vine dresser, God, who determines the health of each individual branch. And some branches that that are not fruitful, that are part of the vine, that are attached to the true vine, some of these branches, their only function is to suck life and suck joy away from the healthy parts of the vine. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, the rain falls on the same land, and some of the land produces a crop to be blessed and enjoyed. Indeed, there were some who were walking with Jesus who were part of the true vine that were producing fruit. But the rain was falling on the same land, and some would produce fruit, and some produce thorns and thistles to be cursed and burned. Jesus had branches with him that were not fruitful. I wonder what our fruit looks like today in our lives, friends. Not all who follow Jesus or claim the name of Jesus actually belong to Jesus. We have witnessed this reality in our own culture today. There is a new trend. I'm sure some of you have heard, maybe many of you have even experienced, watched, or listened to what we're seeing more and more frequently of these, I call them deconversion stories, quote unquote. And, and these stories usually are told by someone who's been a Christian a long time. Usually they're a celebrity, somebody who has a YouTube channel or has been a wor- even worship leaders. Uh, they've come from all different people, former pastors. In fact, there's an entire website for pastors who have left the ministry and denounced the name of God. Their stories usually begin... I prayed a prayer when I was young. I went on missions trips. I served the Lord here and there. But, but after much thought and after much reflection or after looking at the world and seeing this or seeing that or having this experience or that experience, I now realize that Christianity is no longer for me. Brother or sister, I hate to break it to you, but you probably were never a believer in the first place. You, you don't deconvert from Jesus, friends. It's not how it works. You either belong to Jesus forever or you've never belonged 
at all. What I find interesting and unfortunate in these testimonies, if you ever have a chance to watch or listen to one, is that the evidence that the person is giving in the testimony that they're using to show why they were actually a Christian in the first place all goes back to things that they had done on their own strength. I went to church all my life. Doesn't make one a true disciple of Jesus. I prayed a prayer. Prayer never saved anyone. I went on missions trips. It's good. Good for you. A lot of people go on missions trips that don't truly know Jesus. I led music at my church. There are lots of folks leading congregational singing in churches across the world that don't truly know Jesus. I read my Bible often. Well, the Bible has never saved anyone either. Ironically, as you listen to these stories of deconversion, none of them say anything like this. Jesus called me. He regenerated me. He saved me from my two biggest problems of sin and death, and he completely transformed my life. And I was so thankful for the great love that he had demonstrated to me. In fact, oftentimes these deconversion stories are void of any mention of the name of Jesus. I think what you find in these deconversion stories, unfortunately, church, is a self-centered, works-oriented view of Christianity that sadly many churches across our world have helped to perpetuate. It's the result of believing that if we have anything to do with our salvation, if I can choose Jesus, then I can choose not Jesus. But the Bible paints a very different picture, friends. Jesus himself says to his disciples, and this is a spoiler for next week's message, John chapter 15, verse 16, if you want to peek ahead, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Friends, I never chose Jesus. Jesus captured me. He ransomed me. He freed me from the bondage of sin and death that ruled my life. He regenerated me. He's transforming me, conforming me into his image. And he's called me to respond to this great salvation with great fear, great thankfulness, and humble obedience. And we, when we approach the Father like this, when we come to Jesus with this mentality, we can live with the assurance that anything that is being accomplished in our lives, in regard to either our eternity or the fruit that comes from our life, is being accomplished by the work of the Spirit within us. And in this then, we are never found boasting in ourselves what we are doing, the great and wonderful things that we're doing for Jesus. There is rubbish. We're boasting in Jesus. It's His glory that reigns over our lives. Friends, I cannot deconvert from these realities 
just as I could not convert to them. And you know, it's interesting. Deconversion stories are not something that's new. In Jesus' very life, we find a perfect example of this kind of branch. A branch that was part of the true vine, but not producing fruit. A branch that was removed and tossed into the fire. And the branch's name was Judas Iscariot. I think the great hope of verse 2 in John 15 is not that some branches that are not bearing fruit are removed, but the great hope is this, that branches that are bearing fruit are pruned. Church, let me ask you to consider something with me today. Friends, let me ask you to consider something. Is Jesus pruning his church through the experiences and the circumstances of today? I believe he is. I believe in the email we sent that we said that when we come out of this, we are going to be stronger. And I believe that's absolutely the truth. Friends, I can't imagine it feels good to be pruned. In fact, I'm sure it doesn't. We gather together today, and this may not feel good for some of us. The church is being pruned. But the purpose for the pruning, friends, is what we can rejoice in. The purpose for the pruning is so that he might produce more fruit through us in our time here on this earth. And and I've caught a glimpse of this already. I've seen it with our own fellowship here at Calvary Monument. Our missions team met a number of weeks ago and they met via Zoom with these circumstances going on. And, and, you know, you, you come together and you expect there's some concern because financially things are changing in our world and in our culture. And so many are drawing back uh, because of some of the economic realities. And so as you gather, you gather with a level of uncertainty only to see a missions team that's resilient That's saying, we're not going to change how we support our global partners. We are going to support them exactly how we have been and continue to support them that way moving forward. It's wonderful. A week later, our elders gather. This is just last Thursday. And as you read in the email, we had some monies left over from the roof project that we did. Many places today may have decided they needed to hold, hold that money just in case. A little bit of a bumper in case things go awry over the next few weeks and months. And I was so encouraged. Emmanuel was so encouraged by the unanimity of our elder board to take a large chunk of this money and to send it to Loving Christ International so that Emmanuel could complete his building where he is training future ministry leaders and pastors for the country of Ghana. Producing more fruit. Our prayer ministry, Wednesday night, by the way, if you're looking for an activity Wednesday night, Zoom, you got to log in. It is, it is wonderful. We had 31. Now that's 31 logins. Most of them have their spouse with them. So that's probably 62 or so folks gathered through Zoom to pray on Wednesday night. I don't know how Neil's internet does it, but he holds us all on there somehow. And we're gathered together and and you see everyone's face and people are pouring out 
their hearts and sharing what they're seeing God doing and talking about needs in different families. And we're praying for our global partners and it's beautiful. And immediately following that, our youth are meeting via Zoom, spending time together twice a week. And before prayer meeting, our family sits down in the living room. About an hour before prayer meeting, we sit down around the couches and we participate in Awana at home with our children, singing the songs, dancing up and down, playing the games, doing the activities. It's wonderful. It's very different than what we did when we were here in this building. But it's no less meaningful and it's no less powerful. We're being pruned, church, and I truly believe that God is going to use this season in the life of His church. Remember, we are His bride. And He's going to prune us and He's going to put us in a position where He can use us to produce even more fruit. The Bible says, I will build my church. I wonder what God has in store for us on the other side of COVID-19, friends. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to think about it. We could speculate over what it might be, but there's just too many unknowns today. All we can do is abide in the true vine and trust that through all of this, we are being pruned to produce more fruit for the vine dressers glory so that we might be used of God. And isn't that a wonderful thing for the time that we have here on earth to be used of God? Jesus says in verse three of John 15, already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken to you and our minds should go back to Peter's little episode. You remember Peter, Jesus tried to wash the disciples feet. He came to Peter. Peter was indignant. You're never going to wash my feet. And then when Jesus said that you can't have any fellowship with him, then Peter wants his whole body to be washed. Peter was already clean. He was already abiding in Jesus and his word. Ephesians chapter five Verses 25 to 27, start in verse 26 here, that he might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Friends, for those of us who are in Christ, who are abiding in the true vine. We are loved by Jesus. He gave himself for us. He's cleansed us and is sanctifying us through the washing of water and baptism and the word. What we're participating in this morning around the word of God in our homes is part of Jesus' sanctifying work in our lives. He is helping us grow even in this season when we're physically apart. It's his word and the spirit through his word that is doing the work in our lives. So the question might be, what is the primary evidence that determines whether or not a branch is healthy or fruitful? Maybe, maybe you're, you're at home today and you're participating in services and you're thinking, what, what kind of branch am I? Am I, am I a branch that's being pruned to produce fruit because I'm abiding in the true vine? Or am I a branch that's just sucking the life 
out of the vines around me. That's in the vine, but not truly of the vine. And Jesus answers this question with a massively important word at the beginning of verse four. And it's a word that really uh, he establishes back in John 14 and will continue to carry through the end of John 16. And you'll even see a little bit of it in his high priestly prayer in John 17. It's a word with implications that go all the way back to the formation of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Look down at the word, the first word of verse 4 with me. What is that word? Abide. Abide. It's it's ironic. Here we are. This is Jesus' farewell discourse. And he is talking about abiding and being with us. In John 14, he was going away. To prepare a place, friends, he is the place. And what is beautiful in the farewell discourse of John is you see both the imminent and transcendent nature of our God on full display, working themselves back and forth through this text. Jesus is going away to prepare a place, yet calling all of his disciples to abode with him. Near, far, yet never less than ever present in our lives. That's the beauty and wonder of our Savior. He's magnificent. Abide in me and I in you. The branch does not bear fruit by itself. Friends, we need Jesus. And Jesus had said this to the unbelieving Jews in John chapter 8. Verse 31, I'm sorry, to the believing Jews, he said, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And we know we are abiding in Jesus when we're abiding in his words, which should lead us to walking and living and acting in the same manner which he acted. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner, the same way in which he walked. Church, abiding in Jesus means that we're dwelling in his word. We're being motivated by his love to love others in the same manner that we have been loved. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Another spoiler to next week's message. And when we abide in Christ and live in this manner, his spirit is faithful to generate and produce fruit in our lives. Look down at verses five and six of John 15. Another way that we can know whether or not we're a true disciple. Another way that we can experience an abundant life is to bear fruit. Verse five, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There is no eternally significant 
or God-honoring fruit apart from Jesus. Jesus is the absolute essential ingredient needed to produce any fruit in our lives. For apart from him, we can do nothing of eternal significance. I had years ago the opportunity in an academic experience to sit under the teaching of Henry Blackaby. You may remember Henry Blackaby. He wrote the books Experiencing God, Spiritual Leadership, both fabulous books, uh, good reads. And as I walked into the room, uh, he was standing up front and the only teaching tool that he had, and we were going to be with him for two hours in this uh, academic environment. And the only teaching tool that he had for those two hours was a whiteboard. And he had a dry erase marker and he had an eraser. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. And he wrote, one sentence on the whiteboard and spoke for two hours and every one of us was captivated for every minute. The one sentence that he put on the whiteboard, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, in your homes right now, I want you to pause for a moment And I I want you to let that line resonate within you. This is one of the deepest and I believe most meaningful lines of teaching that Jesus gives in his gospel. It drives our hearts and minds towards a greater dependence on him when we realize that there is nothing of spiritually eternal significance in our lives that's produced apart from him. So just, uh, let's just say it again. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Church, I would ask us, if we truly believe this statement, if this statement is true and we believe it with all of our hearts and I'm going to preach to myself, I want you to know that I'm preaching to myself right now as well, then why do we try to do things so hard? Why do we try so often to do so many things in the name of Jesus by our own efforts and our own energies? And why do we worry or fret when they don't go the way that we have planned or expected. Abiding in Jesus, sticking in his word, being motivated to love, live, and lead according to the example is a fruit-producing endeavor because he is the true vine. He makes us effective. He allows and causes us to produce the exact fruit that he intends for our lives. And I think what is sad, this is for myself too, what is sad is that I'm often not satisfied. We are often not satisfied. I think I should be doing more. I should be seeing greater results. I should be going harder, faster, longer. I need to be stronger. And in the fight, both with myself and the circumstances I'm in, I forget that it's actually his power at work within me. He is the fruit producer. 
not me. I love the way Paul says it. It's so hopeful for us, church. This is a beautiful passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we need to sit back and take comfort in this truth because it highlights so many realities that are evident in the church across the world today. In the early church in 1 Corinthians, there was this debate that was raging over these two men. One was called Apollos and the other was Paul. And some people followed Apollos and some people followed Paul. If you wanted to compare it to something today, it may be like, um, we all know John MacArthur and John Piper. And God had used both of them to build his church. But there was great debate in the Corinthian church over who was better or who should be followed. And there was all this argument, jealousy, strife was running rampant. One would say, I follow Paul. The other would say, I follow Apollos. And it became a source of pride and arrogance. Paul's coming into this church and some people are saying, we don't listen to Paul. We like Apollos. He has a little bit. Better preaching style, I think. You know, he's a little bit nicer to the people. I, I don't know what their reasons and reasons were. But Paul resolves this conflict beautifully. Look at the words that he uses. First Corinthians chapter three, verses five to seven. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God. Who gives the growth. Church. God brings the increase. I pause to talk about numbers, attendance, finances, and all of these things. And we often fall in the traps of our own efforts and our own energies to produce results. And we forget that it's God that brings the increase. We're called to be faithful. And his increase doesn't always look like the increase The world defines or describes higher numbers, higher attendance, bigger budgets, more views. His increase sometimes has a lot to do with the heart. We're not anything, friends. It's his building, we're his people. He's the vine dresser. He will make his vineyard to produce the exact fruit that he intends for it to produce. We're simply to trust, obey, and abide. As a sobering reminder, back in verse 6 of John 15, look back in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I have many friends. There are many friends who I've grown up with. 
who once claimed the name of Jesus. They attended Bible studies and worship services. They went to church camp with me. And some of those friends, church, have fallen away from the faith. I still love them. But today their hearts and their lives are far from Jesus. And my prayer for them is that Jesus would truly reveal himself to them, awaken their hearts, free them from bondage of sin and death and raise them up with him. I spent many precious moments with these friends. And I'm sure as you sit at home today, you can think of some names and some faces in your life that this is true of as well. And my heart breaks when I see people who have been in the vine, who know the truth of Jesus, know the truth of the Bible, they walk away. It's a sobering reminder that not everyone who is attending or participating and taking part in church-related services or functions is truly a follower of Jesus. Youth who are watching, children who are watching, Sadly, over the years, as you grow, you will see this as well. Many will fall away. But my prayer for you, my prayer for my own children, is that they would abide in Jesus. Daily abiding, seeking our life, our breath, our ministry, our sustenance, from him and him alone, finding our daily bread in the truth of his words, speaking his words to each other, thinking his thoughts. It's these humble attitudes and orientations of the hearts that the Spirit uses to produce fruit in our lives. It means, church, quite simply, that we're not just going around doing our own thing, saying our own words, speaking our own opinions all the time. You can turn on the TV today and you can see the opinions of hundreds and thousands of people blasted all over a computer screen, an iPad, a TV screen, whatever you watch your media on today. It's everywhere. But abiding in Jesus means that we are committed to thinking like he thought as we see in his word and speaking the words that he spoke as we find in his words that we're actually being led and motivated by Jesus's example. I had a friend in ministry for many years, and this is a very recent story. I debated whether or not to share it today, but I feel like it's important and relevant. And I would still call this person a friend and, just a little over a week ago, I received an email from this person. And he's wrapped up in some pretty difficult theological entanglements. And I fear his commitment to God's word as a source of truth and authority in his life is waning. In fact, in the email, he actually used the sentence that the Bible is a dead book. I fear he's become an authority unto himself that no one's able to question him anymore. And that's what happens when we leave God's word as our sole source of authority and truth. We begin walking on the shifting sands of relativity and self-glorifying humanism. But I fear for this friend's heart. And to be honest, as I stand here and speak to you today, I have not yet crafted a response to this friend. And I need to. And I, I would ask that you would hold me accountable to show love to this friend by writing 
in hopes that Jesus might use my words to direct his heart and mine back towards abiding in Christ. But it, it gives me pause to fear that perhaps this brother maybe never truly knew the true vine in the first place. And church, we must remain vigilant. There are some in our midst who are not yet part of the vine, who are in danger of becoming branches. We must pray and pray that God would direct and orient the hearts of those who he draws into our fellowship towards daily abiding in Jesus. When we're connected to the true vine, he is our nourishment. Our lives are rich and full because Jesus does not give as the world gives. He provides for us abundantly. Take a look at verses 7 and 8. We are to glorify the vine dresser. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Ask whatever you wish. There's some big phrases from Jesus in this portion of Scripture. Apart from me, you can do nothing and ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And again, this is probably one of the more popular verses in the Bible to be taken out of context. Often people use this to prop up why they should be able to have whatever they want, treating God like a genie in the Bible. But when we are abiding in Jesus, one of the fruits that is produced is that our desires are aligned with what pleases God. And when we desire what pleases God, God's response, whatever it might be, should be pleasing to us. Our asking in accordance with the word of God that should be abiding within us is not asking with our own interest in mind. It's asking with the glory of God and the love of God and the love of others in our minds. Not that our expectations here on earth would be met, but that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that which we wish should be in accordance with what glorifies God. When our thoughts and our actions are in accordance with what pleases God, God desires to meet our requests. Not a genie granting wishes to whoever holds the bottle, but as a sovereign king who desires to show mercy and compassion to his people. We will never truly know how or what to ask the king if we're not truly part of his kingdom. The key, friends, today, in this entire time together, the key is in abiding. So, How might our lives look in light of these realities? The closing verse of our text today, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. By this. Those two words go back to that giant word in verse 4, abiding. By abiding in the true vine, the vine dresser is glorified. True disciples of Jesus glorify the vine dresser as they abide in the true vine and he empowers them to produce abundant fruit. Friends, as we close today, 
This is the good life. Abiding in the true vine, bearing the fruit that the Spirit produces, and glorifying the vine dresser. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that as disciples, as believers in you, that we are able to experience abundant life as we abide and bear fruit. The fruit that you produce glorifies your Father, our Father. And we are thankful. Lord, I'm not sure what you're intending to do in this season of pruning for the churches across the world today that are gathering in isolation and in their homes. But we do affirm and we do believe that indeed you are preparing us for something on the other side of this. And our prayer today is that we would be ready for you to produce the fruit that you intend through us on the other side of the coronavirus. Lord, as we go about our time together this week, as we minister to our families, as we work with the people that you're directing our ways, even though it's different today, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be no less effective, that your words would be on the tip of our tongues, that we would speak the hope and the peace and the comfort and the truth that you've planted in our hearts through the hope that we have in Jesus. Help us to honor you, Father. I pray that the Spirit would produce his fruit in our life this week and that we would live in great fear and great thankfulness, abiding in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next week.